the book of Genesis, chapter 2. When you got it, let me know. All right. Let's start at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Somebody say to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, uh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they, somebody say they, shall become one flesh. Let's pray. Father, asking that you would anoint me to preach your word today. That you will help me to teach and communicate the scriptures with all power and with all clarity. Pray that through your Holy Spirit, your sheep who are gathered under the sound of my voice would be edified and exhorted, convicted, encouraged to honor the word and to let the word transform them from the inside out. Help us to grow today more mature than we was yesterday. Strengthen us, give us hope through the preaching of the scriptures. Remove all demonic hindrances and distractions that may 
seek to prevent your word from falling on ground that would produce fruit. Be glorified in this time and have your way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Shout out to Calvin. I heard he uh, heard he did good last week. Was that all right? <laughs> I got to go listen to the sermon. That's my bro. I'm happy, happy he was able to come through. So the first five books of the Bible uh, are recognized by theologians as being called the Pentateuch. The word Pentateuch is a combination of two Greek words. The first Greek word is penta, which means five. The second word is tukos, which means scrolls or books. Therefore, when you put penta and tukos together, you get this word Pentateuch, which means five books or five scrolls. This Pentateuch or these five books or these five scrolls refer to the first five books of the Bible, often called the five books of Moses because authorship is almost unanimously attributed to him. The first five books of the Bible is as follows. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All five of these books of the Pentateuch are written for a specific purpose as it is written to the specific audience of the ancient Israelites. Y'all with me? For example, the book of Exodus, which means to exit or to leave, is a book written about how God raised up the prophet Moses to be a deliverer so that he could bring or cause an exodus of the Israelites out of the uh, slavery of the Egyptians by splitting the Red Sea miraculously and causing them to walk on dry land. It's also about God calling up Moses to Mount Sinai and giving him the Decalogue, which we call the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words or the Old Covenant. Then we get to the book of uh, Leviticus, and the book of Leviticus has to do with the family of the Levites, whom God called to be the family of priests. These were the people who led the priesthood. You couldn't be from the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Judah if you wanted to be a priest. To be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Levi. So the book of Leviticus is about how the Levite priests were called to bring a sense of awareness to the holiness of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So it's written a bunch of laws about worship and about sacrifice because the priests had to handle the word of God, but they had to lead the people in religious service and purity to Yahweh. Then we have the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is called Numbers because there were two censuses that were taken in Israel to count the inhabitants of Israel to see how many Israelites were actually in the nation in this pivotal time in history. And the book of Numbers is about God leading the nation of Israel through the wilderness as he brought them into the promised land. Then we have the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means second law. And what it is, it's a reiteration of the first law. So when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, then they wandered in the wilderness for a hundred billion years, it felt like. Well, a lot of people died and new babies were born. So they were born after Moses gave them the law. So the second law, Deuteronomy, had to be given to remind them, don't hop on no games. (laughs) Don't worship no idols. He told them about the golden calf and all that. So he gave them the law, not a different law, but he gave them the second law for the second time. Last but not least, we have the book of Genesis, which means the book of origins. Roughly 78% of that book is about the history of of the nation of Israel as it was birthed uh, through the man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. 
But the first two chapters of the book, which represent about 4% of the whole book, is to teach us how God created the universe and gave it function. This is the part you want to wake up on. The first two chapters of Genesis is God creating the universe. And after he creates it, he gives function and purpose and meaning to everything he created. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, he says he caused there to be an expanse. And this expanse would separate the waters from the waters. So he says the expanse was placed in the middle and water was placed on top and water was placed beneath. And he says this expanse was made to function as heaven. Then it says that that God took all the water that he had created and he gathered it to one place for the purpose or function of it being the sea. Then he said, let the dry land appear for the function of being the earth. Then he says, let the earth bring forth plants and vegetation so that it might serve the function of being food for the animals and mankind. Then he says, he put the two great lights in the sky, the greater light sun to govern the day. Then he said it would be for time, seasons and years. Then he says the lesser light, the moon was given to govern the night. He created and he gave it function. Next, it says he made the animals on day six, and he made the animals that they might be subservient to humanity. Man was to exercise their dominance over the animal kingdom. Then after he made them on the sixth day, he made man in his own image. Well, if everything else he created, he gave function to, then that means that when he created man, he's going to follow that same pattern. In the text we're going to read today, we're going to see how God created man. In fact, the first two humans, man and woman, and he gave them function. Now, here's what you don't want to miss. Whenever God creates something for a specific function and it begins to operate in a way that God did not create it to operate, the Bible calls that chaos. That's called disorder. So when God creates something, He says, this is how it's supposed to work. When it no longer works that way, the Bible says it's out of order. For example, if I was to look up in the sky and see grass and look down at the ground and see clouds, something's out of order. If if I see animals governing humans instead of humans governing animals, Something is out of order. If I wake up in the morning and the moon is rising and I go to bed at night and the sun is peaking, something is out of order. So when a man is acting like the wife or a wife is acting like the husband, something is Let's talk about it. Today, we begin in a series titled Relationship Dysfunction. And we're going to talk about all the dysfunctional relationships we have. We're going to talk about parenting dysfunction. We're going to talk about marital dysfunction. We're going to talk about dysfunction in the workplace. We're going to talk about dysfunction amongst brothers and sisters in the church. 
We're going to talk about pastoral dysfunction. How much authority does the pastor have and what does it mean when they say the church should submit to the eldership? We're going to talk about all this stuff. But it all begins with the first human relationship ever created, which is husband and wife. Before there was aunts and uncles, grandparents, nephews, cousins in them, there was a husband and there was a wife. That is the first human relationship. Now, why am I talking about marriage dysfunction? Here's why. Because everybody that's married, either currently or sometime in the past, most likely currently, if you're human, have some type of marital problems. There's some type of dysfunction going on, whether you realize it or not. This dysfunction manifests itself in different ways, such as uh, infidelity can cause marriage dysfunction. Verbal abuse can cause marriage dysfunction. Uh, parenting issues can cause marital dysfunction. Financial strain can cause marital dysfunction. Disrespect can cause marital dysfunction. A, a lack of sexual fulfillment can cause marital dysfunction. But what we don't understand is that these symptoms that I just named are all superficial. They're real problems. <laughs> but at the core of those issues is husband not acting like a husband and wife not acting like a wife. And whenever that happens, it causes what in the house? Chaos and disorder. So what we're going to do is we're going to take it back to the beginning. And through the series, we're going to walk through the New Testament. We're going to get into Ephesians and all of that. But we got to start with the origins to see what was God's original intent for man and woman, husband and wife. Can we get into it? Let's get it. Verse 7. Man, I'm hype right now. <laughs> Well, it's been a three weeks. I'm going to yell today, y'all. I'm telling y'all right now. I'm going to shout today. Verse 7, then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Says the Lord God forms man, or it says uh, the man, because there's a definite article there. The Lord God formed the man, the specific man, out of the what? Dust of the ground. When you read that in English, it doesn't strike us as poetic. But when you look at the Hebrew, there are... Uh, nuances in some of the ancient Semitic languages like Hebrew that are missed when it gets translated into English. So when Moses wrote what he wrote, he's trying to make a theological or um, some type of ethical point about Adam that we miss in English. What am I talking about? In Hebrew, it would say, uh, the Lord Yahweh Elohim formed Adam. Not the man, Adam. Of dust from the Adamah. Adam, where we get our English word Adam from, 
is formed from the Adama. Now, when you hear man and ground, do those terms sound, sound similar? No. But when you hear Adam and Adama, it sounds similar. What Moses is trying to say is that there is something about the Adama that has impacted Adam. The root word for Adam and Adama is this word that means red. It's what the root word means. So what theologians agree on is that the Adama speaks of the red soil that Adam was formed from. Since Adam is formed from the Adama, the red soil, he now takes on a reddish brown complexion. So I'm not saying he's African for my, my black proud people in the room. <laughs> Reddish brown, <laughs> not European, we know that, but reddish brown. Theologians sometimes refer to Adam as red man for this reason. So, so he's formed from the red soil, therefore he, he takes on this reddish brownish appearance, this, this reddish tint under his skin. So God forms him, but he's just dust. And something happens. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Scholars say Moses is describing this in, in these detailed descriptive terms because he wants to show how intimate God was with Adam. He says he was up in his face and he brought him to life. This means that before Yahweh breathed into that dusty body, it was just a dusty red body. This means that in order for Adam to be anything, he had to receive the breath of Yahweh. Without the breath of Yahweh, he's dead. With the breath of Yahweh, he's alive. Why is this written? One of the reasons that marriages become dysfunctional is because the couples forget their need for God. The marriage is experiencing a sense of deadness because there's a lack of God in it. Let me, let me, let me give you some examples here. Here's how you know you've left God out. Does God and the word of God and the will of God dictate how we treat each other and the decisions we make? Or are our decisions dictated by our feelings? How we treat each other dictated by feelings and emotions and thoughts. Or do we come together and we say, this is what the word of God says, so this is what we must do. And the two come together and agree on that. Here's, here's the mistake we make. Husband and wife spend too much time trying to agree with each other. <laughs> we too different for that. We got to agree on something that don't change. If we can come together and agree on what the book says. We ain't got nothing to argue about because we both believe that this is the inspired word of God. But couples forget their need for God. So we're completely driven by emotions and feelings and thoughts and culture. But we need God. 
But instead, here, here's here's another thing we do. Um, instead of going to God to actually get uh, the, the, the foundation of our marriage, what we do is we, we, we go to secular culture to get that. We, we go to social media. Listen, and so in my social media, on my Instagram, I will probably never delete social media for this purpose. My initial plans today, and I'm probably going to do it later in the series, was to take all these reels that I have saved on marriage advice that I see people giving on social media. And I'm going to play them on the screen for you and pick every last one of them apart with the Bible. Because this stuff is filled with nonsense. But we got Christians who are looking at this for counsel. Half these people are not even believers. But we're getting marriage counsel for them. We forgot our need for God, so we begin to get it from other places. We're learning how to be husbands from Kevin Samuels. We got the Holy Spirit, but we go into a man who don't know Christ and who does not honor this book. And we're going to that. To learn how to be a man, we forget our need for God, so we get it elsewhere. We watch reality TV and we compare our spouses to them. We, we, we watch the romance comedy, and, and in the romance comedy, all we're doing is saying, I just wish my man was like this guy. I just wish my wife loved me like she did. Totally disregarding that the only reason they loving that way on that screen is because they're getting paid $10 million to read that script. That ain't life. That's make-believe. <laughs> we forget our need for God, so guess what we do? We don't just remain dormant. We, we don't remain in between neutral. We just get it elsewhere. And when we do that, we remain dust on the ground. But when we go to God and we say, we're going to really make you the sinner, <laughs> life will happen. Marriages become dysfunctional when we forget our need for God. Verse 8. <laughs> hey, look, man. So this part right here is about to get real theologically heavy and complex. All right. So. There's a book out here called Pastor Theologian. What that book is about is talking about is challenging pastors to take the, the, the philosophies and the, and the ideologies that you get from the Christian academic world and, and actually bring it to the local church level. That's one of my specific callings in life. So what often happens is preachers will be privy to certain in-depth, rich discussions on the Bible, but they only use it in seminaries. They don't bring it down to the church level so that the church can grow. I don't believe that. I believe that all of us are supposed to get the depths of God's word so that we could all be transformed to the image of his son. So we about this part right here. It's going to get a little theologically heavy. Just stick with me for a minute. Verse eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. It says the Lord planted a garden. Now for years, when I would read that, and when you would read that, we read it like 21st century Americans. Ah, oh, it's a garden. <laughs> and Adam's the first gardener. 
And then y'all know what we do in the next part. God had to get a man a job before he give him his wife. We hit that old tired sermon point. <laughs> you cannot view gardens the way a 21st century American views a garden. You have to view gardens the way the ancient world viewed gardens. When you look at ancient Near Eastern writings, Babylonians, Assyrians, Egyptians, Israelites, gardens was the abode or the residency for the gods. It was sacred space. It was the place where Marduk, the Babylonian god, and, and all these other gods and goddesses of the ancient world, these mythological beings that were believed in by the neighbors of Israel, it was the place where their gods resided. Moses knows this. So what he's about to do is what we call a polemic. Raise your hand if you know what a polemic is. A polemic is when a, a writer deliberately throws shots at another person's belief system. So what Moses is doing, he's saying, oh, y'all believe that the gods reside in the garden? You half right, but it's only one God who up in there. His name is Yahweh, the God of Israel. So he says, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden. He planted it because it's his sacred space. He's saying, you're right. The, the, there is a sense of sacredness to these gardens. It wasn't just trees and plants and flowers. No, it was God's presence. He was there. Oh, you don't believe me. Farida believe me. I got a couple doubters. Farida, Farida going to roll with me. Genesis chapter 3 says something, or you'll miss it if you're not paying attention. It says that after Adam and Eve sinned, it says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. We think that throughout this event in Genesis 2 that God was simply in heaven. That's not what it says. The Father was in heaven who's always seated on his throne in unapproachable light. But the incarnate Christ who was the visible manifestation of Yahweh, was in the Garden of Eden that day. Yahweh was in the Garden with Adam and Eve. So now we know that the Garden of Eden is what is not. It ain't Edgewater Park. It's a sanctuary. It's sacred space. So Yahweh is present there, which means it's holy. And he places the man there whom he formed. More on that in a minute. Verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was most likely right next to it. <clears throat> so now you have trees, a bunch of them. But two of them are given a name. You have the tree of life, uh, which had this supernatural empowerment, endowment by God to grant eternal life to whoever would eat from it. And you also had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, theologians and scholars debate over what that means. It's very complex. It's very hard to grasp. But the one general consensus is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a tree that would grant supernatural wisdom to man. The reason God didn't want him to eat from that tree is because he wanted to be the one who revealed supernatural wisdom to them in due season. The issue with them eating that tree is that they did it prematurely and they basically exhorted or uh, uh, usurped God's authority and says, I don't need you to be wise. 
It's not that God didn't want them to be wise. Just read the book of Proverbs. Read the book of James. Those are books of wisdom. We're supposed to gain supernatural wisdom, but God says we must receive it by divine revelation from him. Not Satan and not on our own accord. So you have these trees in the garden. God is present and you have trees. Are you, do you have trees in the garden? Okay, so there's trees in God's sacred space. Stick with me. I'm, I promise I'm going somewhere. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man. That word took literally means he seized him. It's a forceful word. He took the man and he put him, meaning he settled him in security in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So this sacred space where Yahweh is present, where trees are present, now a man is present. And the man's job is to work it and to keep it. Now, when we see work it and keep it, we still think like 21st century gardeners. Oh, Adam was just there pulling up weeds and <laughs> laying down mulch. He's just, just doing his job, being a masculine man. That's how we read it. But we've already learned that it's sacred space. Perhaps there's more to Adam keeping and working the garden than what we think. Let me get there in a minute. Verse 16 says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree. I'm sorry, eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So now in the garden, you have commandments. So what have we learned so far? In the garden, you have the presence of Yahweh. In the garden, you have trees. In the garden, you have a man who's there to manage the garden. And in the garden, you have commandments. Everybody agree with that? What does it all mean? Let me get Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. Pay real close attention to the details here. Exodus uh, chapter 25, verse 20, uh, 25, verse 8. Actually, verse 8 and 9. And after that, we're just going to stay in Exodus 25. I'm going to read it. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Who's speaking there? That's Yahweh, right? He says, let, let the Israelites, let them make me a sanctuary and I, Yahweh, will dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Okay. Uh, so there's a sanctuary, right? And the sanctuary is inside something called a tabernacle. The tabernacle was this tent structure. 
And inside this tent structure, you had decorations. And then inside the tabernacle, you had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is where God's glory and presence would reside. That's why he says, I'm going to dwell in their midst in the tabernacle. Everybody with me? So in the tabernacle, God is there, right? Okay, let's look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 31. It says... You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Now watch this. Its base, its stem, its cups, its collapses, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of the one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with collax and flower in one branch and three cups made with almond blossoms, each with collax and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. So I've heard about a stem. I've heard about flowers. And I've heard about branches. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like a tree. So in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, you have, you have trees there. And you also have the presence of God there. Okay. Exodus chapter 25. Let's look at verse 22. There, talking about the tabernacle, there I will meet with you. He's there, right? And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So in the tabernacle, you also have God given what? Let me get Numbers chapter 3. Numbers chapter 3, verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, bring the tribe of Levi near. The Levites did what? They were the priests, right? And set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep, keep, keep. And God told Adam, keep the garden. And they shall keep. Guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister in the tabernacle. So in the tabernacle, God is there. Trees are there. Commandments are there. And a manager is there. The manager was called a priest. In the Garden of Eden, God is there. Trees are there. Commandments are there. And a manager was there. Adam was not the first gardener. He was the first priest. God was calling the man to be the priest of the house. That is the role and the responsibility of every husband. Listen, he did not give that role to Eve. Eve is not created yet. He says, I'm not even going to create her so that there's no confusing whose job this is. He says, Adam is supposed to be the priest. He's there not pulling weeds. What he's doing is protecting sacred space. 
He's working. The same Hebrew word that the priest said they used to keep guard is the same two Hebrew words where it says he was there to work and keep the guard. He was a priest and he's there. He knows that he's performing religious service to Yahweh. The second reason that marriages are in dysfunction is because too often men fail to realize and to accept their role as spiritual leader of the house. They fail to accept it. They're hesitant. Lack of assertiveness. Not involved. Lazy. No sense of urgency. No sense of authority. No sense of leadership. This is not written to say, make sure the man got a job before you marry him. (laughs) In most cases, yes, that's probably still true. (laughs) Just don't use this story to back that up. This is written to say, make sure he know how to be a spiritual leader. It's the husband's job to establish theological and doctrinal foundation for the house. It does not mean that the wife, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but that's more so in the coming weeks. It's to some degree the role of the wife, but the primary leadership role belongs to the husband. Okay, I got doubters again. Joshua chapter 24. You got this hanging up in your living room right now. Joshua says to the Israelites who worship in idols, who wishy-washy don't know who they want to worship, he says, choose ye this day who you're going to serve. Whether it's going to be the gods of the Assyrians or whatever other false gods you can think of, you make your decision. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. He didn't say, as for me, I'm going to serve Yahweh and whatever wife decide that's on her. He did not say, we gonna, I'm going to serve the Lord, and if my kids get old enough, I'll let them make the decision for themselves. That don't come from Scripture. We say, I can't force religion on them. That ain't Bible. And we're going to talk about that when we get into the parenting. But it says that the man stood up and says, this what my house going to believe. We're going to serve Yahweh. Doesn't mean that the woman does not have responsibility to be repentant and born again on her own. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that theological structure and foundation comes from the man or it's supposed to. Why isn't that? Why does it seem like we always expect the woman to be the prayer warrior in the house? How come we always use terms like praying grandmother? I ain't never heard nobody say praying grandfather. Ever. Dysfunction. We didn't change some stuff, man. I'm not saying that the woman shouldn't be a prayer warrior. I'm just saying that she not shouldn't be a prayer warrior. And I'm, I'm not saying that the man should watch her be a prayer warrior while he does nothing. He should be the one leading the family in prayer. Hey, time to pray today. That's the husband's job. It's the husband's job to protect the family from false doctrine. It's the husband's job to go talk to the Jehovah Witness first. Now, you can equip the wife so she can handle herself. That's nothing wrong with that at all. But it should not be, hey, uh, baby, you can go ahead and deal with them. I don't know what they believe. Just let me know what they say. (laughs) Spiritual priests. 
In the Old Testament, y'all, the priests were responsible for handling the Torah, the word of God, and leading the, the children of Israel in holiness towards Yahweh. As men, husbands are supposed to serve this leadership role. Why do we have, we'll have a couple and they're they looking for a church and the wife going out looking for a church. While a man watching the Browns at home. This is serious. That's dysfunction. And, and, and it's, that's not how God wired us to be. We're supposed to stand up and say, I want to lead. I'm concerned. Marriages are dysfunctional when men do not accept their role as spiritual priest, spiritual leader of the house. Let's keep going. Verse, <clears throat> where are we at? No, I think we was on fit. There we go. We in, uh, <laughs> we in verse 17. I'll read that part again. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And that day, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Watch this. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man, Adam, should be alone. Now, you, you see that word, the, that precedes man? That's what we call a definite article. When, when the word the isn't there, and it, it's like the word a, like a man, that's what we call an indefinite article. The difference is if it's an indefinite article, it refers to all men in general. If it's a definite article, the, it's referring to a specific man. People will use that and say it's not good for a man to be alone general, in general. Therefore, it's God's will for everybody to be married, no ifs, ands, buts, or maybes. But that's not what it's saying. It's talking about it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. However, when you read the, the rest of the story, <clears throat> God doesn't just drop everything and give him a wife. <laughs> Listen, then the Lord God says it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So he's going to give him somebody. But as we're about to see, she don't get there to about verse 24. This means that even though God recognized that Adam needed a partner, he did not grant it immediately. This means that even though it's not good for the man to be alone, it ain't totally bad yet because God didn't change it. If it was good for him to have a wife immediately, then that means that when he created Adam from dust, he would have did the whole rib thing right then. But he didn't do that, which shows me that there is a purpose for singleness. Ooh, there's a reason for it. God know what's going on. He know how you feel. <laughs> but he like, there's a reason I got Adam alone. He don't know how to be a priest yet. He don't know how to guard sacred space yet. He ain't got the commandments yet. I got to give him the word of God first. I got to teach him spiritual leadership first. Now I can meet his emotional needs. <laughs> so I'm a single people, just a little, little sidebar there. <laughs> we always view singleness like it's the devil. Y'all know how we be praying against it. Lord, whatever this spirit of singleness is, I break it 
You don't even believe in binding and loosening and none of that. But you believe in it when you pray about singleness. I'll break it. I'll bind that spirit of singleness. You don't even believe that. <laughs> we talk about it like it's the devil. We automatically assume it's a bad thing, but we see, no, God has a purpose for singleness. And God is trying to get some things in order first. It's not good for Adam to be alone, so God is going to give him something. He's going to make him a helper fit for him. (laughs) The word fit there, some translations say suitable. Guess what that word really means? Opposite. That's what the word means. When he says, I need to make him a helper fit, he said, it can't be an animal. But it can't be another Adam. It got to be opposite to him. This is how we know. Ain't even got to the helper part yet. That part alone lets us know that there is a distinction between the male and the female. The husband and the wife. I don't care what they didn't told you on Instagram. They're, they're not equal. equal is, they're equal in worth and value. They are not equal in roles. The roles are different. They were different before sin, and they've been different after sin. Not the same. God says, Adam is not good for him to be lonely. Here's what he needs. He needs a helper. The Hebrew is Ezer. T, let me get the the first definition on the screen. Ezer means helper. Now, first, let me say this first. This is from the DBL. The Dictionary of Biblical Languages and Semantic Domains, the Hebrew edition. I ain't get this off Wikipedia. I ain't make this up. I didn't coin this. This is the academic scholarly definition of Ezer, a helper, an assistant. And then he said, if you ain't got that, one who assists and serves another with what is needed. Helper does not mean lead priest. Helper does not mean head of house. Helders does, uh, helper does not mean chief authority in the house. A helper is one who assists another. This means that God created Eve to be an assistant to Adam, who's the spiritual priest of the household. So as he's doing his spiritual priestly duties, It ain't that she not involved. It's just that she's in an assistant role. Mm. If I was a manager, Eric, right? What's up, man? How you feel? If I say to Eric, hey, man, I want to promote you because I'm your manager. I want to promote you to assistant manager, right? That's what I tell Eric. Eric is pumped up. He get his pay raise, and I give Eric all his responsibilities as assistant manager. And I say, Eric, as assistant manager, your responsibility is to keep track of who's tardy, keep track of who's late, and to write up anybody who call off without sick days. That's all you got to do. Then on his first day on the job, Eric posts up a work schedule for all the employees in the building. Now, that wasn't his responsibility. That's my responsibility as the manager. He's the assistant manager. 
The moment he created that schedule, guess what he just created? Chaos. Because he just interpreted his role as assistant manager as meaning lead manager. And they're not the same. They're both managers. It's both a managerial position. But one has a lead role. The other one has an assistant role. The third reason that marriages often become dysfunctional is when the wife oftentimes refuses or has a hard time accepting or becomes discontent with her role as assistant. Ooh, I knew it was going to get quiet on that part. Y'all was hype when I was going in. Y'all was hype on the spiritual leadership part. Now it's quiet. <laughs> they were shouting y'all out the room, Paul, on that part. Now it's quiet up in here. <laughs> oh, I love this church. Okay, here the cars on the street right now. <laughs> Wife becomes discontent with helping, and it creates dysfunction. Since she's discontent with helping, she reverses the role, and she begins to implant herself as lead priest. Now, husband got all type of issues. Now he's frustrated because he felt like you're trying to take his spot. Here's some ways you'll know if you've grown discontent with being an assistant, if whenever decisions are made, you always assume that your way is better, red flag. If you always right and the husband is always wrong, you've become discontent with being a helper. If you feel like your accolades and your uh, education and your um, credentials make you more qualified to be a leader, you've become discontent. Here's a big one. If you will let the husband make final decisions, and we're going to talk about decision making later. It ain't like the husband is dominating. But, but, it, but if you're discontent with the decision that husband is making, you go along with it. And because you go along with it, you like, oh, I'm, I'm fulfilling my role as helper. But what you'll do is you'll go along with it, but then you'll just be mean to him. You'll just punish him for it. And there's different ways you can punish. We got kids here, if you know what I mean. So, so, so what you'll do is you'll, you'll punish him because you're mad about the decision that was made. When you start to do that, you already know. You've become discontent with that helper role. Here's what we're going to explain later in the series. Spiritual leadership is not contingent, upon, not contingent upon how good the helper is. And being a helper is not contingent about how good the spiritual leader is. Remember what I said at the beginning? We got to agree on this. This is what we got to stand on. What happens is we start to base our roles based on how we view the other person on that day. That's not how it works. Marriages become dysfunctional because women become discontent with being the helper. And we're going to see what happens with that in Genesis chapter 3. Never turns out well. Never turns out well. Let's keep going. <clears throat> Verse 19. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Why is Adam naming these animals? And what is the theological significance of it? Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God gave dominion to the to the man. Speaking of humanity, actually male and female Bible, because the next verse, two verses later, it says, and let them rule together, which means that the wife has a voice. Which means that whatever headship is, it doesn't mean that the wife no longer has a voice or responsibility. Okay, so it says, it says, let them have dominion over the earth. Go back to Genesis 2. In ancient times, to give names to something is to exercise your dominance over that thing. Say it again. To give names to something is to exercise your dominance over that thing. So when Adam is naming the animals, what he's doing is walking in his purpose of having dominion over them. Book of Genesis, I believe it's chapter 18. God comes to Abram and he says, your name will no longer be Abram, it will be Abraham. I got power over you, I'm changing your name. Genesis 32, he wrestles with Jacob. Then he changes his name. Gives them a new name. In the same way, Adam is giving names to the animals because he has authority over them. Now, here's what I want you to understand. It says that Adam was given authority over the animals, right? Dominance. But the whole sermon, we've been talking about how the man is the head or the spiritual leader of the wife. So he's the spiritual leader of the wife. But nowhere in the text does it sell him to have dominion over the wife. It says both of y'all are going to have dominion over animals. It never said have dominion over the wife. It says be a spiritual leader. What does that tell us? That spiritual leadership and dominance are not synonyms. Whatever spiritual headship is, it should not look like dominance. One of the reasons that marriages become dysfunctional is because husbands too often dominate their wives. Ain't no voice for you. Do what I say. Like a child. Here's what we end up doing. We end up treating a wife like she's a member of the animal kingdom. That authority is supposed to be for dogs, not humans. But we, ha- we have this mentality of rulership. Can't nobody question me. Can't nobody give advice. Can't nobody have a voice. Can't nobody get a two cents. Nobody in the house has value but me. Here's the thing. In in the Bible, dominance in any relationship is frowned upon. Read Matthew chapter 20 when you get home. Jesus says the Gentiles domineer over their people, but among you it should not be so. 
one of the qualifications of the elders in the church, according to Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, is that they must not insist on having their way. But that's what we as husbands do. We, we, our way is best, and, and then we throw the, the, the head card in there. You know, God made me the head. <laughs> you ain't the head, I'm the head. So whatever I say, I know that I don't need to hear what you got to say because I already know how it's going to be and how it's going to go down. That's called dominance. Here's what we need to understand about the woman as it pertains to her role as wife. And let this encourage my husbands in the room, my wives in the room, and my, 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 my single people who have aspirations of getting married. See, let me get that second definition of helper. I saved this one. Ezer means strength. Power to accomplish a task. That's the word Moses used when he says God made her him a helper. He didn't just give her an assistant, like a weak person who's just timid and ain't got much to offer but whatever advice she get from the man. He says she got strength, power to accomplish a task. It's the same word that the Bible used of Yahweh when he grants help to his people. So we know it's not a word that denotes inferiority. It's not what it means. He says there's a sense of strength and power. Now think about this. If God told the man, you need a suitable helper, that don't mean that the woman has some type of inadequacy in her. We missed that part. He says there is something lacking in man where he needs this wife to complete it for him. I know my own story. I'd be jacked up <laughs> if I did not have my wife. There is something that a woman contributes to a man that he can't get from another man. He can't get by himself. So he says that's a sense of strength and power. That should encourage all of us to work as a team, not as enemies. Two more points and we out of here. Verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Adam is basically seeing all these animals and they booed up. <laughs> he like, dad, y'all know how we be like when we like single and your best friend single. Then your best friend gets somebody. and You be the third wheel. It ain't a good feeling. I think that's kind of how Adam was feeling right now when he saw the animals. But it says, verse 21, that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it. I love uh, I think King James said he fashioned it into a woman and brought her to the man. Mm. The, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Wow. Adam goes to sleep. God opens him up, takes his rib and makes a woman out of it. When I was studying this, here's the question I asked myself. Why didn't God just create her from the dust of the ground? Okay, Adam, form you out of dust. A couple days later, however long it was, <laughs> I'm going to create Eve out of the dust of the earth. And I'm going to bring y'all together. Y'all be married. He didn't do that. 
He says she needs to come from you. Why is he doing that? He, Moses wants the Israelites to know that in marriage, there's a sense of union that's supposed to be there. So he says, I'm not going to create her separately because that sets a precedent. I'm going to create her out of you, which means that she's a piece of you. If she's a piece of you, there should be a desire to get that piece and to be united as one flesh, as he tells us later in the text. Marriages become dysfunctional when married folk live like they separated. The only division in the life of Adam and Eve is when God divided that rib out. But what does it say after that? Verse 22, and God brought her back to the man. It's not meant for you to be separated. But what we do as married folks, we marry, but we live divided. Y'all want some examples? <laughs> husband sleep upstairs, wife sleep downstairs. Wife sleep on the couch, husband sleep at a hotel. Still married, living divided. Uh, husband make his decisions with the money, wife make her decisions with the money. In fact, you'll hear terminology like this. Uh, you need some of my money? I'm going to give you some of my money. Oh, you need some money? Okay, I got some money. You ain't got no money? It's never a we. It's never a ours because there's no unity there. We're living divided. Uh, you know, husband has his way of parenting the child. Wife has her way of parenting the child. Divided. Uh, husband sides with the kids. And, and, and sides with one kid, wife sides with the other kid. Divided. Uh, kids mad at the father, mother goes to the kids and make them even more mad at the father. Divided. There's just division in the household. God is saying, no, I, I've made you to be together. Oneness. Unity. One mind. Singleness of thought. You know, it's crazy in the book of Genesis when the Tower of Babel incident happened. It says that the whole earth had one language and was on one accord. And you know what God said? Nothing will be impossible for them. <laughs> so he divided up their speech. They were trying to build a kingdom without them. That teaches us the power of unity. But when we live divided, we create all type of chaos. One more point and we going home. Ooh, man, this last one. What security at? Y'all got me just in case. Guys, we'll make sure they got me. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Hmm. Now, in ancient times, it was actually the wife who had to leave her house to be joined to the husband. So that means that what Moses is talking about, he's not talking about a literal leaving somebody. He's talking about priority and commitments. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. That means to cling to her, to stick by her side. And they will become one flesh. The last reason I believe that marriage has become dysfunctional is when spouses prioritize relatives over each other. We put family 
little brother, little sis, big sis, mother, father, grandparents, over each other. God says, that's not the will of God. You leave that commitment. Now, he says, honor your mother and father, right? But there's still a sense of leaving that, meaning that my primary aim and focus is my wife, not my mother, not my father, not my friends, not the kids, (laughs) my wife. Here's what we've done in our marriages. Instead of man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they become one flesh, Husband now one flesh with his with his with his with his dad. Wife one flesh with her mom, with her sister. Uh, here, here's how you know you're doing that. Whenever there's um when, whenever there's some type of uh conflict, you got to go talk to this person to get them as mad at your spouse as you are. That's not leaving and cleaving. <laughs> that's inc- that's bringing your relative in to make them a part of the one flesh unit. That's not God's will. Uh, Here's another way you'll know. um, You're willing to do whatever for a cousin without even caring what your wife's thoughts on it is. Cousin eat the ball 500s. That's my dog. I got to do what I got to do. I'm just going to send the money. Or vice versa. Anybody can do this. Because you've prioritized family over spouse. God says, no, no, no. You leave those commitments. Don't mean you leave your family in the dust. Don't mean you don't look out. But it means your priority is each other. He don't just say leave his father and mother. He says hold fast to his wife. That means stick by her side. That means defend her even when his family coming against him. It's no condition in here. (laughs) He says, ride with your wife. That don't mean there's no accountability. That don't mean you don't tell somebody when they wrong. That mean that you don't treat her a certain way in exchange for pleasing other people. And the wife has to do the same for her husband. I'll say this last thing before we close. He says that as you do this, the two will become one flesh. You'll get that unity that God desires for you. Over the next few weeks, we're going to go deeper and deeper. Today was like a zoomed out version. Next week, we're going to zoom in a little bit more into specifically what these roles look like. We're going to talk about headship and words like submission and and things that you may have heard in pop culture. But we're going to walk through scripture and we're going to explain how these things work. And I'm telling you, if you apply these principles, and I'm not saying this like I'm some guru because I'm not. I just believe this stuff is scriptural. If you will apply these principles, if we would apply these principles, I promise you, and I don't promise much, (laughs) but I promise you, you will see God breathe life into your relationship. And if you continue to reject and deny it, you'll continue to see death in your relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the written scriptures and the depth that is in it. We thank you that your word is true and that it's really helpful. It enlightens the eyes, as Proverbs says. Word of God says, every word of the Lord is flawless. 
God breathed. Lord, we thank you for it because it is our inheritance to help us navigate these relationships properly. God, I pray for our marriages here at Living Stones. I pray for our engaged people. I pray for our single people who are dating. I pray for our divorced people. I pray for all those in this room who desire marital union and a healthy marriage. I pray on their behalf that you would grant them that in your own time. I pray that you would bring a sense of humility in the household. Husband will walk in humility towards his wife. Wife will walk in humility towards her husband. And that things would change and get better. It is your will that we have healthy marriages that reflect the gospel. And if it's your will, then I mean that the ball is in our court. You already said it's ours. You already said it's your will It's your will for us to have this. All we got to do is obey the scriptures and carry out the principles. And your word will come true for us. Would you do that for our marriages here at Livingstone's Church? I pray for any husband who is struggling in his leadership. That you will remove any shame or guilt. And that you will start them over brand new today. You separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. I pray that that'll be a reality for every man in the room who feel like they failed. That you'll let them know it is not too late. For the wives here who have an issue or a difficulty or a challenge with being in an assistant helper role. May have a problem with honoring spiritual leadership. God, would you remove whatever the root cause is that's leading to that idea? And that just the way you did it for the man, that you will remove any guilt or shame or embarrassment that they may be feeling for their failures and their sins. And that you would just remind them that today is the day for sin, confession, and repentance and to start over. And that you would bless them for that. You would give them deeper capacity to fulfill their roles, even if their husbands are not fulfilling theirs. Help them, oh God. Pray for the family unit that you would hinder the attacks of Satan and that you would help us all to walk in the spirit so that we do not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Be glorified in this place. Be glorified in your people. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.